You're listening to What is American Food? I'm Allie Burlow. And I'm Hannah Semler. What is American Food is a podcast exploring and challenging the everyday stories we hold about the food we eat and don't eat and why. Thanks for being here. You can find our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts and through our website, which is whatisamericanfood.com. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts as it makes it easier for any new listeners to find us. Right now, we want to take a moment to recognize and thank the Betsy and Jesse Fink Family Foundation for their support of this podcast, What is American Food? The Betsy and Jesse Fink Family Foundation are founders of Refed.com. It's a national network and think tank of food-related businesses, NGOs, and people who are addressing the many issues of food waste and rescue all along the supply chain. One of the greatest things I think about the foundation is that they're strategic and impactful. They work in the big picture and in the grassroots, supporting organizations and people whose mission and passion is social and environmental justice. And the Betsy and Jesse Fink Family Foundation have also been supporters of Community Food Bank, building capacity for the produce rescue efforts that we're talking about today. So let me introduce the final of three episodes dedicated to Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. The episode is entitled Rights-Based Food Banking, Moving Produce Rescue Towards Justice Across Borders. Wow, let's do this. In this episode, you'll hear from two guests. The first is Michael Rosine. He's a co-founder of Equal Exchange, which is a fair trade organization. So he gives us perspective on fair trade values applied as originally intended to farmers abroad, but then he brings it back to us in the U.S. and talks about regional food growers, which he has spent the last 25 years through his role at Red Tomato dedicated to. Here's Michael. I am Michael Rosine, founder and evangelist for Red Tomato, a food hub in the Northeast, and I'm sitting in my house in Middleborough, Massachusetts, which is southeastern Mass, the part of the state nobody knows. And next, Michael describes how he got into fair trade in the first place. I was a purchaser and marketing manager for Northeast Cooperatives, which was the central food co-op warehouse in New England um, in the early 1980s. And it became really clear to me as my role as a buyer um, and as I got to understand fair trade that that this would be a really important thing to happen in the U.S., in North America. So three of us left the food co-op movement in order to establish equal exchange in 1986. Michael's journey over the last 40 years from local food in the Northeast to coffee growers in Central America, I feel like he's been a mentor of mine all these years, and yet we've only just met. So I'm so excited to have him here today telling us about the fair trade values that I've taken for granted and and grown up with. In fact, I've experienced them firsthand in Guatemala, walking with coffee growers as they explained to me what it meant to be a fair trade cooperative. What this story that we're about to embark upon means to me is that I didn't understand how thirsty I was for it. Frankly, I've been so focused on local food system work and empowering anyone and everyone to engage in their community's food system So Hannah, when you shared your experiences with me about working on the border in Nogales in the midst of COVID ravaging the national food supply chains, which impacted the hunger relief supply chains, those stark inequalities laid bare for me were like the missing pieces because it's in the greater context 
in which local and regional food stories could be told. And so the second guest today brings us a story of produce rescue and hunger relief across borders. And I've been working with Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona for two years to understand how the produce rescue efforts in Nogales are serving our country's food banks with additional produce, especially in the winter months. And it was through a conversation with Robert in his office at the Community Food Bank in Tucson, where he helped me rebalance my thinking around what more could we do beyond rescuing produce? And so here's Robert introducing himself. Robert Tojeda. Um, I live in Tucson, Arizona. I'm the chief program officer for the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona, and I've been working here for almost 11 years. So I'm one of the founding members of the Closing the Hunger Gap Network, which is a national network of organizations similar to us who are interested in moving organizations from a charity model to a more of a justice model. So when Robert says moving from charity to justice as the chief program officer for the Community Food Bank, this is a big deal. You know, Robert Egger, founder of DC Central Kitchen and LA Kitchen, once explained to me how he had been at the table in the 80s when food banking started to split between those that wanted it to be more of a grassroots movement and those that were leading it towards being more of a business solution to the food industry. And what's so amazing about Community Food Bank's Produce Rescue Program is that they're saying, let's go both and. By partnering with businesses doing work in U.S. and Mexico that support the right to food with fair trade values, workers' rights of those producing the food that Community Food Bank rescues, they're saying, this is what it looks like to be a business solution, one that is efficient, that creates the logistical ability to rescue the produce when it can't be sold, but also one that asks the questions and holds the businesses accountable and supports and is a multiplier effect to the social impact that those businesses might be involved in creating for their communities. So to that end, let's bring back Dana Yost from our interview in episode two of What is American Food? Dana is the COO of the Community Food Bank. And just as a heads up, we had some technical difficulties when we recorded Dana Yost, but he was too good. We didn't want to try to go back and fix perfections. So thanks for the grace. Community Food Bank is the steward of one of the most important uh, food ports into the United States in Nogales, Arizona. We, you know, we sit on a resource um, that's phenomenal from uh, a lot of different perspectives. It's phenomenal from a food waste perspective. Um, the landfill in Rio Rico, Arizona, which is right next to Nogales, if it closed tomorrow, would be a super fun site um, because of all the produce waste that goes into that. Um, we also sit on a resource uh, that's got tremendous potential to. Uh, have an impact on hunger relief across this country. And so I think that, you know, the work that we're doing to rescue fresh produce out of Nogales um, and, and also in Mexico is, is some of the most important work that we do. You know, my food bank, from a standpoint of root cause work that we're doing, though, is probably the most important thing and the most important work that we're currently engaged in. You can hear Dana's commitment to the both end that Hannah mentions earlier, which is hunger relief and food justice. But this is still very much in process at the Community Food Bank. Conversations are happening as we record the show as to how to do this work, which is reconciling the day-to-day needs providing food with a root cause food justice lens. 
So Robert Ojeda describes some of the thinking behind the shift in the Community Food Bank in its approach to their hunger relief work. I think exploring deeply our stereotypes and assumptions about poverty and people experiencing poverty. And so I think that process for us creates an openness then for us to talk about other systemic issues. So we've had all kinds of opportunities to engage with our board, our staff, and, other, and key leaders around really what that looks like. And obviously what that looks like is not just that people are hungry, but all kinds of other things. So that's, that, that's been an important piece. Another piece that I think for me has been really important is that I think to dismantle a little bit what success looks like. So that also led to lots of conversations around like, what are we really changing? And so I think for the last over 20 years, there's been quite a bit of like, I think very healthy tension inside the organization. Community Food Bank learned that there was a certain amount of frustration out there and they didn't understand why, because they were getting people food. They were fulfilling the food bank role. But their partners wanted a different kind of partnership in determining at least the kind of food they were getting. And once the Community Food Bank understood that, then eventually more conversations about race, equity, and root cause system work could happen. And I mean, everyone has been involved in this conversation, the leadership team, multiple heads of program from across the organization, community members, food recipients, and local food activists, all looking at this rebalancing of hunger relief and justice as an interconnected lens through which to achieve the right to food for people everywhere. There's a lot of interest and a lot of uh, a lot, a lot of activity around this kind of work, and so we're also through through the closing the hunger gap work. We're connected to some alliances uh, with Canada and and Europe, of, and all kinds of folks who are doing innovative work about that too. And the language that's used is more around food is a right, and then what does that mean, and all the, all these interconnected sets of rights as well. Let's take a moment and turn to the Closing the Hunger Gap and their solidarity statement. I'm just going to read it. Hunger is a complex issue, but it'll never be eradicated without addressing the underlying interwoven structural issues of race and economic inequality. To end hunger, we must add the human right to nutritious food to the policies and practices needed to bend the moral arc of our society towards justice. There will be no food justice without racial justice. There will be no racial justice without economic justice. You know, Allie, to tell you the truth, I'm still digesting this statement every time I hear it and every time I read it. And it's so important. And we certainly stand in solidarity with it. As we continue in our journey of asking what is American food, we're going from the initial story we started with in episode one and two about the millions of pounds imported and shared across the border with hunger relief organizations nationally, and turning now to the millions of people along the supply chains, farmers and farm workers in Mexico and in the U.S., and the stories that Robert Ojeda and Michael Rosine bring us to inform that work and that thinking. And circling back to the Community Food Bank in Arizona and the idea that national hunger relief systems depend on this rescued produce in the winter months, and that eaters all across the U.S. depend on that 84% of winter produce grown in Mexico, local food economies currently depend on this food. 
Because when any of us walk through the grocery stores in the winter or restaurants try to source fresh produce, the vast majority are looking at price and convenience and variety. And right now in the winter, a lot of that is just not local. Definitely. And one part of the story that you'll hear from Michael Rosine later on is that there are U.S. small and medium-sized farms that are also struggling to survive. And some of that is due to possibly unfair competition. But it's important to take this at a farm-by-farm, crop-by-crop, and almost at the plant level and think about, well, what are the different bioregions? And where might tomatoes grow best? And what are the climate and resource conditions that will help us rebalance how the story of this interconnected food system across borders, across sectors, across regions, starting with those local farming practices and then moving out to really thinking about, well, what does food sovereignty and food security and people's rights across any supply chain mean to, you know, us sitting here in Maine looking at what we're going to eat today? And here's Michael. Red Tomato was hired to do some market research and development for a project based at Cornell called the Eastern Broccoli Project. And so we're researching the potential for developing an Eastern and a New York-based broccoli sector, which has already gotten off the ground. And we're doing fresh and frozen. And when you get into the world of frozen broccoli, what you find is that even though there's all this interest all this demand among U.S. institutions in the farm-to-school, farm-to-institution world, there hasn't been any way to really produce frozen broccoli in this country at scale. There are numerous examples where very brave, small-scale NGOs have done some IQF, individually quick-frozen broccoli, in small scale in order to get it to institutions, but no one has figured out how to do it in a scaled up way. And uh, we are working with Maine's leading food bank entity, the Good Shepherd Food Bank, uh, on on a very ambitious proposal that they are developing to launch this kind of a project in Maine and possibly as a regional effort that brings growers in from other parts. And when you look into the costs of production of the broccoli that ends up being frozen, that all of us eat, you find your way back to Central America, and a lot of it comes from Guatemala, and you start to untangle this web that we're talking about right now. And you have to ask some questions about what's good for the food banking system, what's good for American consumers, what's good for American farmers. And these questions are all intersecting. And, um, you know, there you have it. And I think that kind of goes to the heart of what you asked me. Also important to think about is tradition and self-determination because the unraveling of rural life is real everywhere. And a lot of how I see us rebalancing towards supporting the rural economic development that might happen in Mexico or might happen in the Northeast is figuring out what it means to build community and to empower people to participate in the process of building community. And food is just a vehicle towards which we can all build that common understanding of the rights that we have to feel 
a part of our community to influence it and to get what we need from it. Here's another story about Red Tomato that Michael has to share with us. Red Tomato serves as marketing agent for a very large black-owned plantation slash farm. It's a pecan orchard in southwestern Georgia owned by New Communities, um, which is a nonprofit farm and I would say black farmer rights organization. And we are the marketing agent for a 200-acre pecan orchard. And in the process of selling their pecans, I've been learning a lot about the global market and the amount of pressure that Georgia, once the world leader in pecan production, now feels from Mexican orchards, where uh, they have planted so much, so many pecans, and and have been exporting to U.S. nut packers and industry that uh, Georgia feels quite threatened, especially the mid-size and small growers in Georgia. Um, and as is true for a lot of production in Mexico, the labor laws are less stringent, and I think the environmental regulations are less stringent, and the costs of production, therefore, are lower. And so Mexican producers have an advantage. And a lot of those Mexican farms, I believe, are owned by Americans or American companies, or at least some, some portion of them. Yeah, let's talk for a second, Hannah, about the cultural rights in, that are intrinsically tied to worldviews and economic agreements that affect communities' ability to continue to produce their own varieties of corn, for example. Certainly, the Maya indigenous communities that I spent years with learning from and understanding the importance of the cultural revitalization process that comes with the self-determination of being able to grow the crops that are intrinsic to your worldview. So the somos de maíz, we are made of corn, that, that the Maya say is, is, comes with not only denouncing the economic structures that have made it harder for them to sustain their way of life through their traditional practices of corn, there's so much more to it. I mean, we just learned that Mexico banned genetically modified corn, and that is a huge win for the 3,000 varieties of corn that hold the food security of Mexico safe because it's a staple in their diet. And with climate change and market pressures, it's really important to make sure that we have that kind of variety. And so the connection between cultural rights and food rights are really important, especially when we're thinking about, in the U.S., the many different cultures that we have coexisting that we need to look at when we're talking about distributing food through food banks or growing food in our communities. It's really like seeing the unseen and in a sense of privilege that that has been, but now the privilege that we must undertake. For me, it boils down to, you know, I eat a lot of local food, but I still support the idea that some produce from Mexico makes it to my local food co-op or grocery store or food bank in the winter. And I also think it's great that apples might make their way to Mexico. Both you and I want to know the story behind the food, not just the marketing messages, whether that's food from local or from far away and how the people and the planet are being treated along the way. It's a call to transparency. Here's Michael speaking to the storytelling and what's needed in his view around that. First of all, people aren't told the story that you're telling. Um, logistics and distance 
and usually the sourcing of long distance supply that's just not part of it's not part of the story that people tell but i think most people don't see past their own nose when they're thinking about the source of their food what they're caring about is safety is is this okay for me to eat for my children to eat um, because there are so many stories told in the media also by NGOs, um, um, told by business, and in that leave, I think, people seeing a very short, narrow story that's many times fear-based and telling them what they need to worry about more than helping them to understand farming and agriculture. Thinking about Michael and Central America, he mentions their first shipment was from Nicaragua. I wonder about the ways in which they learned how to tell the story to customers that was compelling. My heart was always in local farming and food. Um, it's not in my family background. I don't know where I got it. it. Didn't seem to come through the genes. But my passion, my heart is growing local fruits and vegetables. And I'm, I'm a kind of out of control uh, homesteader, gardener myself. Um, so the whole time that I was at Equal Exchange starting, I was also really interested in how does this connect back to local and eventually, I had to leave Equal Exchange in order to explore that and figure it out for myself. Um, one of the curious things about working at the international fair trade level is that it's really, it was almost easier for American citizens, shoppers, consumers to um, find interest and kind of a sentimental attachment to peasant farmers growing commodity crops like coffee and chocolate and tea overseas than it was for American citizens, shoppers, consumers to really understand local farming in their own backyard. Um, that took a different mindset. And I'll tell you, uh, 25 years later, I, I'm still seeing that connection in people's minds as one of the most difficult obstacles for us to overcome. That is to, to have people really understand how food gets to them and the role of farmers in that. Um, and that's why I think your project and your podcast is so important. And what stands out to me is how Michael, immersed in the work of figuring out how to get people to understand the value of farming in general, across the board, wherever that farming may be happening, through the lens of fair trade through the lens of local and now community food bank, looking how to tell their story through combining their lenses. And so here we go back to the right to food and, and the work at community food banks. So the safety is really important, but people receiving food at food banks and at food pantries also might want to choose what food stories they're a part of. Just like community food bank, through deep listening, is navigating this complicated balance of the food system story that they want to uphold. Here's Robert. I think the way food banking has been structured tends to prioritize or value efficiencies. And so with that comes how quickly you can do all these tasks around, you know, the aggregation and distribution and all these logistical functions. 
we just don't take the time to slow down and really think about you know how things are interconnected and how 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 we're impacting different parts of the system as we do this work and i think you know there's been pressure i think for food banks to grow 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 to have the best facilities to have the best transportation fleets and to get more and more staff and the more we do that the more insular and inward looking uh, we become and the less we invest in 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 the ecosystem of partnerships and the taking time to really learn what the assets are out there, taking time to really understand communities, and ultimately, I think, taking time to build trust in communities because that takes time. It's, it's really a measure more of effectiveness rather than efficiency. One way Robert and his team worked to build trust was by understanding who are the people in the community food bank's community. And they did that by reaching beyond just the demographic data to collecting ethnographies with support from the University of Arizona, which was pretty cool. We had like a, a really important conversation at the food bank. Is it possible to do hunger relief and other work at the same time? That allowed us also to say, let's bring more healthy food, including produce. So that was the beginning of sort of that journey for us as an organization. Then we grew very rapidly with the produce. But then, then you know, the next question then we started asking was, if the rights of, of workers and others along the food chain are important to us, if sustainability issues and environmental justice is important to us, how does that conversation uh, become part of the discussion when it, when it comes to sourcing of produce. And so on one that says that as we continue to evolve our root cause work and implement long lasting solutions, we, you know, we still need to be able to address the immediate needs of, of community folks. But if we do it, let's use a rights-based lens to inform that. And, and I think that's where we are. And so what that looks like I think will be interesting for us, uh, but I will tell you along the way, there are a million paradoxes and things we have to figure out, you know, um, along the way. So here it is. Here's the concept of rights-based work that Robert brings to figuring out how the produce rescue efforts that are only three years old can introduce a way of partnering with their donors in Nogales and the farms that are in Mexico producing the food, and share community-level stories that ultimately help them build the strategies to creating a better life for people in communities receiving the food and communities producing the food. So one example is the Covili Farms, which we'll hear from Robert about a little later on. But there are partners that already work with Community Food Bank's produce rescue effort whose stories are really really interesting and that I want to know and that maybe people receiving food at a food bank want to know. So let's hear now from Michael's perspective about the challenges and differences in storytelling and narratives told about farming communities abroad compared to the narratives and storytelling around farming communities in the U.S. I think it's maybe the difference between sympathy and empathy. I think it's easier to feel sympathy and to believe one kind of has the picture when the farmer in mind is um, 
living thousands of miles away and is really destitute, poor, earning less than $1,000 a year, for example. Um, it, there's not really any moral conflict for anybody to say that's not fair and um, it shouldn't be that way. And fair trade is really painting that kind of a story and picture. And even though I think the fair trade companies have a much more developed, complex story to tell, they don't really have to tell that whole story to get that consumer's affiliation or attention. So now you go to local, and now we're talking about farms that you can drive by on your way on vacation. You see them all the time if you live in a kind of exurban area. And what you see are beautiful landscapes, uh, but you also see farms that have assets, they own equipment, they have machinery, and um, poverty is not what comes to mind. Even if you're driving by a really small-scale farm that might be on the edge of survival, um, poverty and extinction are not what come to mind. You're going to see either a, a beautiful landscape, um, fields, equipment, people working, and I don't think the brain goes to, wow, these people are are growing the food that I eat necessarily, even though that's kind of obvious, or it doesn't even go to, I need to support this enterprise to keep it in my community or keep it in my region so that we have jobs and farms and land and experts who know how to solve natural resource problems. I don't think it, it just, it just doesn't happen that way. And so I think people kind of experience it more as agro-tourism or um, a snapshot of pleasantry, um, but not necessarily a critical part of their own sustenance and economy. What Michael returns us to here is that farms are a part of their community, whether or not they are seen as such, and wherever that food may be produced, whether it's locally or globally. And as we consume 84% of our fresh produce in the winter months that is Mexico grown, and you think about all that food, truck after truck coming across the border. Well, do we think about it? I mean, how do we stay connected to that story? So I just want to ask, is the foundation of food security knowing where your food comes from and its place in the supply chain, whether that's right around the corner or across the globe? And a lot of these questions make me really want to acknowledge and explore what we think hunger and poverty and food justice looks like in the U.S. Here's Robert. So one thing that I'm very passionate about, and it, and it has to do, I think, with, I think a precondition for food security is like our ability to participate fully in public life and have the power to be able to influence and make decisions in your community. And so that to me feels like a very, very important thing. And so what is the relationship between communities and institutions like the food bank, you know? And can we act more like an ally in solidarity to the needs and interests of those communities? So I think that's a really vital, vital piece there. The other one that I think applies uh, for, for us because we, you know, we're of the business we are in has to do with the, the, the conditions of farm workers. Uh, and and I could you know like talk about their their health in general you know what what does the health look like for farm workers for 
workers uh, for industries and businesses that um, that donate to the food bank, you know, and so that that seems like a really important conversation. In our particular context, I think you know um, what what's happening with our immigrant families. Um, so that all of that is important, and uh, Native American families. Uh, but then the other piece that to me is like, if, as we think about land and land ownership and sustainability issues that we have, you know, we have, um, we're part of the Sonoran Desert, and this is a region that happens to be divided uh, by the, you know, by the border, but that we are so deeply interconnected. And, um, and so I, I think that's a really important piece, you know, like, uh, my, our well-being in southern Arizona depends on the well-being of people in Sonora and Sinaloa. And so can we stop uh, this relationship that's very extractive where, you know, it's, it's about bringing more food to us here on this side and we look good as an organization and many benefit and we're all, you know, we congratulate ourselves. But what are the conditions, what's happening down there? I think of the border in Nogales like it's a semi-permeable membrane when it comes to commerce and trade, yet it's hostile, designed explicitly impenetrable with persistence in terms of people and their culture on either side and the environment, including wildlife and biodiversity. So next we're going to hear from Michael, where he brings up some really good points about collaborations, complex collaborations and stretch collaborations all across sectors. It makes me think about situations I've been in more than once in the food movement in the last years, where, you know, all of us just to do our job, we have to kind of get up in the morning and stay focused on the mission of the organization that's buttering our bread, that's paying our way, that we've dedicated our careers to. But an awful lot of those organizations and missions are actually working on a narrow slice of a much bigger pie. Um, but, but they still have to focus on the food banking part of it, just like I have to focus on Red Tomatoes' mission, much of which has to do with the economic survival of mid-sized farms, most of them orchards in the northeastern region. And so when I think about your question about rights-based um, approaches to all of this work, I feel like how we collaborate and how we see our own sometimes small part of something way bigger feels really important to me. And I think um, what I heard in your earlier podcast was not an assumption that we've got all the answers and this is the key to solving the world's problems, but rather that a cooperative or collaborative approach is just we just know that that none of us can do this on our own and that we actually need to kind of retain humility enough to know that we need the help of other groups we haven't even met yet and um it's so complex when you when you bring the food rescue food banking world together with production overseas or at least in Mexico and Central America and then you think about yeah but what about the farmers at home why are we accepting the fact that 84% of our winter stuff is coming imported and not even questioning whether there might be 
a solution inside of the country that actually balances that out somewhat that would help save the mid-sized farms that are definitely threatened here in the U.S. and on and on. And so I guess I rest on collaboration, cooperative approaches, and humility in our analyses um, that we could really understand root causes and transformative solutions um, as being kind of the absolute right way forward. I love how forthright Michael is. It's interesting to me to think that it's taken my lifetime to get to a place where food banks and the food system are actually converging around the need to look at rights, interconnected rights across the supply chain, regardless of sector. Here's Robert. One of the transformative moments for me had to do with, you know, when I met folks from Cavilli Family Farms, and Hannah, you may have met them, but, you know, this is a family-owned business that, uh, fair trade business that, you know, has... uh, they work in Mexico and in the U.S. and they've they certified many many uh, farmers uh, here and there. But just the stories I heard about sort of the the work they do on behalf of their workers was just really powerful for me. And it's a very personal to me, you know, my my dad, my and a few of my uncles and my grandmother died of cancer, and I know that it's because of the high use of pesticides as they were farming. And um, so it's a very, it's a very personal thing. And that's why, um, that's why I'm so passionate about this. But I, I'm, you know, I can see, like, I'm very, still very much connected to my, my Peruvian community and, uh, and the place where my dad grew up and where they were farming. And I can tell you the same environmental issues that we have in Sonora, we have in, in El Valle de Tambo in Peru. And so, um, I don't know. It just feels like such an important thing, and, and it feels like a, a an opportunity too. I, I, I've been connecting slowly with with organizations in northern Mexico that are doing innovative work, and it's just super exciting to see that you know that there is an opportunity for us to partner. And puzzling to me that it's taking <laughs> almost fifty years for us food banks to start doing this work in a more integrated way. There's a shift. It's a game-changing shift in how food banks might see themselves as influencing the future of food from a lens of justice. Let's come back to Robert Ojeda and his personal story of finding voice. My first job at the food bank, I was overseeing the educational programs. And when I applied for the job, they said they wanted a community organizer. And I was really perplexed and interested in, in that that whole thing. But really for me, it, it, it was when I was an ESL teacher, I, I found that a lot of my students had all kinds of issues that were impacting their lives. And I had no idea what to do about that. I got depressed. I thought, you know, originally if people learn the language, that'll take care of things. And so, uh, so I got involved in really community work and really understanding that to be able to make a difference in our communities, we need to be able to participate fully in public life, in our community life. And there were some skills that I learned that really allowed me to be better at that. I was I was shy and quiet. I, I didn't really feel like um, my voice mattered very much when I started this whole journey. But I personally experienced the power of having folks invest in you and believe in you and then finding that my voice mattered and that 
once that was the case, that I could really make a difference in my community. And so I think it's that journey and that process, working in communities that have all kinds of talent and assets, but also just, just really creating some bridges so that folks have the ability, uh, opportunity to really uh, determine what happens in their communities. And so it, it's really about the art of that and deeply connected to stories and storytelling and relationships and trust. That's it. That community piece, a precondition for food security is our ability to participate fully in public life. Here, Robert continues to talk about how he brings his experience to his work. In our gardening programs, we have garden leaders, and these garden leaders have become really consultants and organizers. We pay them to do this work. Our original facilitators of that are playing different roles. That work led to you know, a lot of the cooperative development work that we do today, like building collectives and incubating ideas at the food bank and then transitioning out of that and then having communities own that. I mean, all kinds of things that have grown from really the home gardening program. That was, I think, the catalyst for a lot. And so where we are today is really an organization, for example, this year, uh, we gave $3 million in grants and multi-year grants with basically no strings attached to really innovative organizations in the community that are doing hunger relief, but all of them have more of a justice lens. And it was a very long journey of like trying to make sure that, you know, this work is also valued uh, as much as, as hunger relief is. And then in partnership with uh, folks from the U of A uh, in the, that helped us design the space in a participatory manner, the farm was developed into or the space that the community wanted. There was buying, there was ownership. And then out of that, you know, there was a self-selected group of leaders who wanted to become part of that advisory group for the farm. And there's an example of one of those leaders. Her name is Panchita, who was very actively participating in that in the farm, brought her whole family, her whole family was involved. Um, but she also understood that her voice and her perspective mattered and that she could make a difference in her community. I think from, from my perspective that we keep professionalizing food banking. And we want people with like the degrees and nonprofit management type training, those kinds of things. We've elevated and valued, you know, other kinds of expertise and knowledge. And we've hired many folks that are really the experts that are doing the work in community and invested in them and in their growth in the organization. And then the other thing that I think has helped us is that intentionally we started developing partnerships throughout the country so that those partnerships will give us Best, best, best practices, innovative ideas, but also would serve to uh, reinforce that we were moving in the right directions. Let's hear a little bit more about Community Food Bank's process in developing this network approach to change. It felt very lonely to me. When I started working here in 2009, I realized that, um, you know, I would go to a gathering of like the more progressive voices around food justice and people were very critical of food banks. And it, you know, like there was very little room for dialogue around that. And then you would go to the more traditional uh, 
hunger relief, food aid type gatherings, and there was just no discussion of any kind of other uh, uh, direction or, or alternative. And so for that reason, we started engaging. We spent the whole year, 2012, talking to organizations from throughout the country, just learning uh, you know whether or not there was any interesting work and what interest folks had. And we, we were just so pleasantly surprised. Of course, there had been decades of work uh, before us, so very grateful for that all over the country. And so I think we learned that um, you know at least a third of, of the organizations we engaged with were doing really interesting work that was more food justice type work. And that there was a third that was curious and the other third you know, just uh, maybe maybe content with with things uh, with the status quo, and and so, but that was like you know 2012, and and so today I would say there's a lot more happening out there, and gives me hope that uh, you know there's there's a lot of interest and a lot of uh, a lot a lot of activity around this kind of work, and so we're also through through the closing the hunger gap work, the language that's used is more around food is a right and then what does that mean and all the all these interconnected sets of rights as well it is so wonderful and what an honor to hear about michael and robert's work it's very grounding it it really feels like this journey that robert has been on and michael has been on and how these voices come together are really nudging us all towards going out there and realizing that now more than ever, we have an opportunity to take this forest fire that's happened and figure out where we can sprout up with our voice and our power and rebuild. So I just want to say this episode has been a journey in and of itself. Thank you so much to the entire team of Community Food Bank, the produce rescue team in Nogales. There were some people that we weren't able to interview, Efrain Trigueras, Ben Rodriguez, Tomas Lopez. We're really excited about all the work that you're doing. Thank you to Robert Ojeda and Dana Yost, the leaders of Community Food Bank, and uh, their commitment to listening and dialogue is truly inspiring. And last but not least, thank you so much, Michael Rosine. It has been such a treat to have your contributions and many perspectives of the food system weaved together with the story that we had today, collectively answering with exploration, what is American food? And thanks again to the Betsy and Jesse Fink Family Foundation for their support of this podcast. You can find more about their commitment to this work at bjfff.org. And now, barley. Thanks, Melody Roel and Ian Carlson for production support. Our music is by Ian. And we give voice to Barley, who barks, lives, eats, and plays right here with me in Maine. I'm Allie Burlow. And I'm Hannah Semler. Thank you so much for listening, everyone.